Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, Rochelle Di Maria is young and had just finished her training to be a cosmetologist when something just wasn't right. It started as just kind of a little bit of dull um, pain in my spine and in my back. Rochelle still hasn't been able to launch her career, and she may never be able to. The cautious attitude towards life now, not that I want to not live my life, but how carefully I have to, because there's a lot of days where that's hard and it's it's not fair and, you know, you get really into your head. Rochelle's sarcoidosis story is coming up. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello, this is episode 106 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. I do this podcast to help you understand what's going on with you and to give you a sense of hope as you deal with this unpredictable disease. And today we'll be hearing the story of Rochelle de Maria. She'll be talking about her life and how she is dealing with sarcoidosis. You will hear her talk about what life was like on prednisone and how she has decided that no matter what, no matter where the disease takes her, she will not choose to use prednisone to fight it in the future. And I will tell you that uh, Rochelle is younger than most SARC patients and is frustrated that sarcoidosis is keeping her from launching her career. However, it did not prevent her from getting married, something for which she is grateful. And she's uh, she's amazingly upbeat for somebody in her situation. And my talk with Rochelle is coming up in just a few minutes. On the personal side, I can tell you, I'm pleased to report that Two weeks after my Disney cruise with the grandchildren, I do not appear to have contracted any kind of illness. (laughs) I was worried about that. You know, we're all taking these immune suppressive drugs, and I worried about being on on a cruise ship with so many people in such close proximity, and especially when about half of them are our children bringing home every illness from school and so forth and so on. Uh, So I was worried about it, I'll be honest. And in fact, there were some Facebook posts from other passengers on our ship who said that they had gotten COVID, but I can say that I did not, and so far so good. And I think it's been long enough that I can say that I'm safe. So fingers crossed, knock on wood, whatever you want to do, things have turned out okay. I do want to share with you a little bit about the most recent broadcast story that I have been working on for WSLS 10, the NBC TV station here in Roanoke, Virginia, where I'm the news anchor. And and I'm sharing this mostly just because I think you'll find it fascinating. Um, It's very interesting. You, You may have some awareness of it. It's the story of Michael Brown. Michael was an AWOL Marine who made national news back in 2019 after killing his stepfather and then disappearing and sparking a nationwide manhunt. But this was a local story, and and a lot of that manhunt was focused right here in and around uh, where I live in 
in the western half of the state of Virginia. And and also, it's worth pointing out that in 2019, uh, if you remember from previous podcasts, it's when I was at my lowest low in dealing with sarcoidosis and, and all the medications. I've been taking cytoxin, high doses of prednisone. So, you know, chemo and prednisone combined, plus the sarcoidosis itself. And uh, and I was still working during that time, but it, but it was kind of rough. So this would have been uh, late October, early November. I want to say early November of 2019. So I was... I was kind of sort of on the way back at that point. But if if you uh, you might remember it because it was national news, the, the TV networks were here, especially uh, on a day when uh, there was this big manhunt because authorities thought they had spotted Michael Brown in a neighborhood right here in Roanoke. And they closed the schools. They told everybody to shelter in place. They had SWAT teams and uh, armored vehicles going up and down the streets of this little charming neighborhood here in Roanoke. And one of the things that uh, that led them here was they, they thought there, that someone had spotted him knocking on the windows at his grandmother's house. And, and I do, in hindsight, we now know that was true. But then he had also bought this old RV, uh, not, a tra- not a trailer you pull behind uh, a vehicle, but actually one that you drive, like a Winnebago. And uh, so he had parked this RV in the parking lot of a local church here in the neighborhood where they were patrolling after they, they've discovered this RV. And so this was what was amazing. So news media, we got on this early, early, early. Right? Like our morning news was all over it at 5.30, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and by the time I got there to the scene to do coverage, again, back in 2019, authorities had ripped the entire side off of this RV. So think about, if you're looking at it um, from, from the broadside view, they went in and just rammed it with some sort of big vehicle and then grabbed a hold of the side of the RV and just peeled it off. They just peeled it off like it was a skin so you could see into the RV where the living room was and there was there was essentially nothing left in it and they were pulling pieces out of it. They found his guns and they found all kinds of stuff and they were pulling all the all that stuff and looking for evidence and 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 throwing everything that wasn't evidence in the dumpster that they had pulled over next to it. And so, um, so that was the day that I would say that this story reached its crescendo up until that point. And so we broadcast our entire 90 minutes of evening local news from the lawn there at St. Elizabeth Church. NBC was there. They were set up right next to us. I, I think I think all the networks were there, ABC, NBC, CNN, CBS, all the local affiliates, everybody had their little little area set up with their lights and so forth and so on. And we were talking about this AWOL Marine and who was thought to be armed and dangerous. And they had found this RV and they had confiscated all of these guns and they, you know, the AR-15s, the whole the whole nine yard, right? Big, big, scary guns. And and he was a trained marksman because he'd been in the Marines and he was he was quite a good shot. Um, and so, you know, it was really, really scary, but they hadn't found him yet. They found all the stuff, but they hadn't found him. And so while we were doing our broadcast, 
they hooked up to that RV and they towed it away. And the way the driveway of the church was set up, they, they pulled it right behind where I was sitting. I mean, 30 feet away, uh, me and, and honestly, the rest of the media. So, and I just pulled out my cell phone and I, and it was just so remarkable to see this ripped up RV, right? I mean, just, just nothing left of the side of this RV. Uh, so, so I just took out my cell phone and I took video of it as it went by because I thought that's something I'll always remember. Well, it turns out there was a lot more to the story literally than meets the eye or met the eye because it turns out that there was a cabinet inside that RV and Michael Brown was six feet tall, tall, skinny guy. And he was inside the cabinet in that RV all day while they were searching for him. And yes, even while we were broadcasting and even as they took that RV and the tow truck dropped it off at the impound lot, he was in there and we got a tip from somebody who knew somebody in the tow truck company that they had video of him at midnight getting out of that RV, looking around, running over and jumping the fence and then disappearing again. And so I took that tip and I went to his attorney and I said, is there any way that's true? Because there was nothing left to that RV. I I can't imagine where he would have been hiding. And she said, yes, John, I think you are going to find that to be true. And it was. And so I broke the story that while all the authorities in the world were looking for him, he was literally right there in that RV in this one little cabinet. When they pulled off the side, there was just a little piece of, I don't know what it would be, sheet metal, whatever there, there is on the outside of an RV that was hiding this cabinet. And he was in there the whole time. And when you look at, when you look at the side of it, you just honestly can't believe that there was any place for a a person to still be. And of course you would also think, well, if he was in there, they would have opened the cabinet and they would have seen him. But, uh, I now, I now know that what he had done is there had been like a rug inside the cabinet and he pulled it up so that when they opened the cabinet, all they saw was the rug, uh, and not him right there on the other side of the rug. It just looked like a shallow cabinet with some knickknacks in it and they didn't see him. And of course it was uh, for the police. It was, uh, they had some egg on their face. Let's admit it. And, and so they were not happy with me for breaking that story. Um, but anyway, so that's true. So why am I talking about this today in February of 2024? Well, for uh, the last two weeks, pretty much since I uploaded my last podcast. I have been working on the story. Michael went on to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, He had something called dissociative amnesia. I I don't know. I don't know enough about psychology or psychiatry to tell you, but think of it sort of like, um, sort of like multiple personality disorder or schizophrenia where, During the time that he killed his stepfather, he didn't know what he was doing. It was like another person inside him 
or came forward and did it and he had no memory of it. And that's a really difficult thing to prove in court. Something like less than 1% of all cases where they try it on not guilty by reason of insanity, that it actually works, but it did in this case. And so he has been in a mental hospital ever since 2019, early 2020. And his attorney, who I worked with confirming all of this about the RV, told me that I could have the exclusive interview when Michael was healthy enough mentally to do it. So it turns out that a a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine has some ties to Roanoke, and she started quietly making phone calls some months ago and, and picked up the story. And I got wind of that. And I called that same lawyer and I said, I hear Rolling Stone is doing this. Is, is this the time to do the interview with Michael? And she said, yep, it is. She said, I said, I'll preview the Rolling Stone magazine story. I, I mean, it, uh, you know, it kind of is a testimonial to the fact of what a big story this is that Rolling Stone wants to do something on it. And it is out in the February issue, by the way, if you want to pick it up. Uh, it's got Dua Lipa on the, on the cover. So... I was able to do a hour-long phone interview with AWOL Marine Michael Brown and uh, and to ask him about you know what was going on because what happened was when the case went to trial, we thought we would get the whole backstory. We'd been hearing about all this abuse and all these different things that had happened to him that triggered him going AWOL and that triggered him having all this animosity towards his stepfather and and we thought the details would come out at trial, but because they pled not guilty by reason of insanity, there was not a lot of testimony and a lot of the things that normally surface once something is no longer, quote unquote, under investigation, but is now be presenting, being presented at trial. That's when, when we in the news media usually find out a lot of information. Well, it didn't happen this time around because of the way that the defense went. So... This was my opportunity to ask him, was he really in that trailer? What was it like that day? What was the nature of the abuse that he suffered as a child? And it turned out to be terrible. And and we actually had pictures his attorney provided to us of holes in the wall at the house where he grew up, where his stepfather had literally put his head through the wall. Uh, And he detailed um, daily abuse at the hands of this guy. And his mother, by the way, when he was growing up, also had mental problems, and and she would spend years and years at a time in a mental hospital. And so Michael and his brother were living with this guy. And so we we know Michael's version of things now, um, and we've confirmed it to the extent that it's confirmable. Uh, A lot of this stuff, social services knew about at the time, but because he was a juvenile at the time, uh, those cases are not released to the news media. They're not public, and so they don't have to release them, and they they don't to protect the juvenile. And even though he's now an adult, they still won't release it. So all we know is what we know. Um, But I was able to get him to talk about the abuse, Uh, I was able to ask him, were you really in that trailer? And he said, yes. And not only that, but he was able to describe the conversations he overheard from police officers right outside the trailer during the day. Um, And then uh, I, I now know that they had gone back and they had listened to some of their own body cam Um, sound 
that was rolling during the day and it matches up exactly with what he says he heard. So he's spot on with it. No other way he could know it. So he was really in there. And I just finished working on a three-part report that is now, um, you can you can watch it if you want, uh, on WSLS.com. Again, that's Channel 10 in Roanoke, Virginia, the NBC affiliate. And uh, it's, it's done very well. And I, I also um, interviewed the writer from Rolling Stone magazine, and she was in part one, and Michael's attorney. Uh, who was in part one of my three-part series. And then I was fortunate enough to, with a little bit of time, to get a Zoom call set up with Michael. And I've also done an an on-camera interview with him. But I want to pull some other details together and maybe do some other interviews with law enforcement from the time before I put together that fourth story. But, man, I... (laughs) I've been working on this almost constantly since uh, two weeks ago when I uploaded the last podcast, and it has really been sort of uh, an amazing, uh, amazing journey as a journalist to be able to report that. And so, so that's what I've been working on in between podcasts, and of course, doing my interview with Rochelle, who we'll hear from here in just a minute, and and working on other things around the house, um, celebrating my oldest son's, I can't believe it, but thirty sixth birthday, thirty six. Really, I have a thirty six year old son. I, I I don't know where the time went. Um, and so, you know, back to Michael just quickly. Uh, you know, a lot of times. The things you cover in the news will lend themselves to life lessons because they tend to be extreme, right? I mean, what I just told you about Michael Brown and the murder and the and the AWOL and uh, not guilty by reason of insanity and all those, you know, that's, I think we can agree that is extreme. And, and honestly, everyday situations just, don't make the news, right? It has to rise to a certain level before it's something that people care enough about for us to talk about it on the news. Um, and But often in the extremes, I find life lessons or takeaways that I can share with you. And, you know, with this situation with Michael Brown, you know, uh, I can tell you that, yeah, life is certainly unpredictable. And so is it when sarcoidosis all of a sudden comes knocking on your door. And I think we'll hear a little bit of that from Rochelle today. Uh, You never know what's going to happen. And I might even be able to reach all the way to just be glad you're not living his life, Michael Brown's life or his family's. Uh, You know, I mean, there's so much that's just terrible about the way he grew up and everything that's happened to him and everything that he's done. Right. And 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 he's still in that mental facility and and who knows when when he'll get out. But it does look like he'll get out someday, uh, probably in less than five years. And in this case, I'm just happy to share with you uh, something that I've been able to do, honestly, as a as a journalist, which is what I what I love to do. I'm interested in doing and uh, and and able to do that now in 2024, even though when the story broke in 2019, I was in the midst of my worst year with sarcoidosis and hoping that there was, that for me, that there was light at the end of the tunnel. And, and so far there has been, you know, knock on wood, I'm, I'm feeling good these days. So, um, so, so there is that, there is that hope, there is that takeaway. And, 
And and that's where I will leave you with that. And, you know, the other thing I want to say is I really hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter podcast, the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. Glad to be able to be uh, the voice of sarcoidosis. And I just want to ask you to help me reach more people so FSR can be as effective as possible. So, you know, give this show a nice review, share it on your social media, tell other people that you know in the sarcoidosis space that you listen to it, and and just say, hey, uh, I think you'd enjoy it, and, and maybe they'll listen to it as well, and we can just make all of this so much more effective. All right? So uh, coming up is my interview with Rochelle De Maria here on the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. I feel like a zombie. Just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. Joining me now from Colorado is Rochelle DeMaria. Rochelle, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, John. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the fraternity. Sorry you're here, as I tell people, but uh, but it's good to talk with you this morning. Um, so tell us a little bit about you, like, you know, where you work, what you do, how old you are, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm 28. Um I'm not working right now because sarcoidosis kind of prevents that a little bit and some of the side effects, which um, at 28 really sucks. Um, I believe it. So. uh, Okay. All right. Well, so let me jump in. So you were uh, you were diagnosed in 2022, but you started feeling bad back in 2020. Tell us about that. Um. Yeah, so um, it was 2020, and um, everything shut down, and and it made seeing my doctors kind of hard. (laughs) Um, But it started as just kind of a little bit of dull um, pain in my spine and in my back, Um, and I thought, you know, talking to um, a few people, some of them a little bit older than I, they were like, oh, that's sciatic pain. Um, And I was like, you know, at the time I was 25, I had no idea what that was, you know, and I was like, okay. Um, But then it progressed, it got worse. Um, And I was like, hunched over to walk and I felt like I was an 80 year old woman, you know? Um, And I was like, this is not normal. and I tried to get in to see my doctor and they were, you know, well, we're not doing in uh, patient visits. We're backed up, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, whatever. I'll be fine. I'll just, you know, ice my back. Um, and I was, um, 
progressively getting worse. And um, I want to say come the end of October and the beginning of November, um, I couldn't move my legs anymore. Um, so it, it just progressed slowly and slowly. Like I, I wasn't able to go up and down my steps. I had to slide on, on my butt down the steps. My, um, fiance at the time would have to help me get to the bathroom because I couldn't move. Um, and at that point I was terrified, um, I'd like literally had to use my hands to move my legs. Um, so at that point, I, I told my doctor's office, my PCP, like, look, I need to see my doctor. I need to get a telehealth appointment as soon as possible. Um, so, so I did. And um, I don't remember too much. Uh, I, I remember him calling me a puzzle. He couldn't really figure out what was wrong. Um, and I don't remember if he had me go in for labs because I wasn't really able to move around. Um, right. right. And this is in the middle of the pandemic, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. But at, at one point there, he was like, well, let's try prednisone and see what that does. And I swear to God, it was like a magic pill. Um, I, I regained functionality um, slowly, but, but it, it, it came back and, and my pain was going away. I got really angry, though. <laughs> you did, did you? Yeah. <laughs> um, and... That kind of sparked uh, my primary doctor to to send me to a rheumatologist who's like, um, at that point, he didn't know what else he could do for me. He was like, okay, that that says to him that it's like an inflammatory thing. So um, I got my my first referral. <laughs> so. Um, so so you were you were a pretty healthy person, 25 years old young woman living the young professional life uh are you you're in colorado are you in in denver or rural colorado where are you i'm in colorado springs um okay. i did a lot of hiking um i had just finished hair school when the pandemic hit right so, right yeah um was hoping to start my career doing that um and you know i, I was doing all the things right yeah so, so your doctor sends you to a rheumatologist, uh, which is kind of where sarcoidosis lives, uh, unless until you get into all the other specialists like pulmonologists and neurologists and all of that, depending upon where it decides it wants to take up residency in your body. So your mm -hmm. rheumatologist starts looking at you and says, huh? How are we going to figure out exactly what it is? Did they did they start looking for sarcoidosis right away, or did that take a while? Um, they did not look at sarcoidosis right away. So um, I have rosacea on my face, um, and it took a little convincing to tell, um, convincing for them that it is just rosacea. They thought that it was like 
um, lymphoma or something like that, because apparently that's a prominent um, side effect or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so then they looked at um, Sjogren's and spondyloarthritis and uh, um, one or two other things that I can't really remember. But they did x-rays and CAT scans. And I want to say after like nine months to a year almost, um, they finally found something on a chest CT um, where my rheumatologist uh, sent me to a pulmonologist. And they were kind of conferring on whether or not to do a biopsy on this, this little spot. And the pulmonologist was like, because it wasn't directly on the lung, it was on the lymph node. Hmm. Like, well, from a pulmonary standpoint, he didn't see a point. You know, he was like, there's nothing wrong with the lung. He was like, we don't need to do that. But my rheumatologist really pushed for me. Um, he said, well, this could determine the course of treatment. It could really give us a better view because at that point he did suspect sarcoidosis because nothing else was coming up. And then they saw this on the CT. Um, so he was like, we we really need the confirmation. Um, so they did the bronchoscopy and they got a biopsy and it came back as sarcoidosis. That was uh, February uh, 2022. So now this is February 2024 and you've been living with this for a couple of years. You're, you're not able to work. So is it... I don't want to use the word just as if like, oh, that doesn't, you know, that's not a bad case of it, but is it only in your lymph nodes or is it elsewhere? Um, so, um, there, I, I'm having some heart issues. So they're checking my heart now. Um, I don't have any confirmation either way at this point. Um, but as far as I know, it's just in my lymph nodes confirmed. Um, but yeah. I have um, a few other autoimmune things shown up as a result of sarcoidosis, as what I'm told. Okay. Um, so like a neuropathy, and they've told me I've developed uh, arthritis and fibromyalgia at 28 years old. Um, um, and they told me it's because of the sarcoidosis. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but right, right, yeah. I, I, we would, we would have to uh, go to a medical professional. That's, that's not something that I've heard of on on the podcast or in talking to other people in the in the sarcoidosis space. But uh, fibromyalgia is just awful. Um, that there's i have a family member who suffers fibromyalgia and the pain is is incredible are you are you in pain like right now as we're talking yeah you are where does it hurt um around my spine my lower spine um mostly yeah yeah um wow uh so and you told me that you don't think the medication they're giving you right now is the right medication. Why? Um, it's not helping at this point. Um, so we tried 
uh, just hydroxychloroquine on its own for uh, about the first year. Um, and then I switched uh, rheumatologists and um, we did some testing and we got me onto methotrexate, which is the current um, current plan uh, uh -huh. form of action. And you give yourself it's a shot working. with the needle? Do you actually? Um, I'm afraid of needles, so uh -huh. we started with the pills. The oral, okay. Um, but that doesn't seem to be working. So we're talking with um pulmonology and uh, rheumatology about starting Humira for me. Okay, all right, yeah. and you you may or may not know that's what I take. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, it is. It is, and um. So I, I don't know whether you'd say I'm in remission or I'm controlled, but I do take Humira and it's uh, it's kept me where I need to be to function. So um, I, I lead a pretty, pretty normal life. Uh, so I wish you the best with that. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, are you still taking prednisone? No, I um, when my first rheumatologist saw me. Um, I had been on prednisone for about five or six months and he couldn't get accurate pictures in the x-rays or the MRIs. So he had me lean off of the steroids, um, hoping that the, the things would come back. Um, just, just to start from scratch. Um, and after I got off, I was like, I, my personality had become angry and I had gained so much weight. I was like, I never want to be on prednisone or steroids again, no matter what, unless I absolutely have to, and there's no other choice. So I, um, I've only been on steroids again once since, and it was a really bad case of like pneumonia and bronchitis. And it was like two months of being sick. So, yeah. How many milligrams were you taking? Uh, 40, 40. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so you wanted to be a hairdresser. You had just finished. What is the proper term? Is Am I using like the word hairdresser? Uh, sounds like something my mother would have said, but I know there are, there are much more professional terms. What, what would you have called yourself? Had you launched into this career? A cosmetologist. So I could do hair, nails and skin. Okay. And you had, you had just finished school mm -hmm. and yeah, that went well. You, you, did you have a job lined up where you're going to open your own shop? What were you going to do? Um, so I was, I was working as a bartender and I just finished school. And then, um, I was looking for a place to rent a booth out of, um, cause it's a lot cheaper and then I can, um, kind of manage my own hours instead of showing up on somebody else's schedule. Um, and I had my own clientele at that point as well. Um, so it's just kind of easier. It's just finding a space that allows me to do that, which is, is there in the industry. It's, you know, it's not uncommon. Um, but then after a month out of school, everything shut down. So just a month. Uh, well, it shut down because of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess people at that point didn't even go, well, I guess I was still getting my hair cut. Yeah. I mean, you had to do certain things. 
Uh, so were, were the shops, would, would you have been able to open your shop or was that just, was that a pandemic thing or a sarcoidosis thing? That was a pandemic thing. Everything okay. was just, um, March 16th, everything closed completely. The bar I was working at, at absolutely everything. Um, the streets were completely dead, which I actually enjoyed. Um, <laughs> no traffic, you know, sure. um, but not being able to work or do anything was horrible um you know and that was just before getting sick you know once once the symptoms started and, and I couldn't move and losing all autonomy like the the demoralization was horrible yeah I'll bet it was all right I'm going to geek out I need to ask you some bartender questions can I do that um, sure. so, so the bar you worked at where, I mean, were there times where it's shoulder to shoulder and super busy? Um, not, not too busy like that. No, okay. there, I remember being a, a crowds of, of like parties, you know, where they would stand shoulder to sh shoulder, right. you know, drunk and just, you know, Hey, we want, we want some more, you know? Uh, I just, cause I never know. You know, when you're when you're when you're in a crowded place like that and everybody's trying to get the bartender's attention, what works? Um, at that point, it's kind of just on the bartender to be paying attention to their patrons, you know, uh -huh. um, and depending on the size of the bar, how many bartenders there are, you know, um, if you're out in the room, the best thing to do is um, if you don't have a server, uh, just come up to the bar. You know, and say, "Hey, excuse me." If you if if you can do that over the noise, what's the most yeah. popular bourbon that you would ever sell? Mm. Low end so stuff. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just thinking. You know, is it Jack Daniels? Is it Woodford Reserve? I'm a little bit of a bourbon junkie, but not much. <laughs> um. Just. Bottom shelf bourbon, pretty much. Right. That, that's, you know, the people don't stuff. really go for a brand anything unless they're trying to show off. <laughs> that, I might or or unless that. they're, you know, really into all of the um, different names and things like that. But then they normally go to somewhere a bit more like a brewery. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Distillery or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Now I want to go back to, you couldn't even walk. I, yeah. I, and I let you tell that story, but I want to go back and dissect that a little bit. So one day you get out of bed and it's bad and the next day it's worse or was just, just one day you couldn't walk. How did that hit you? Um. So yeah, it was, you know, a steady progression of you know, uh, moving slower and slower, needing to hold on to walls. And then, like I said, I, I, the one day I just, I had to move my leg with my hand. Like I just, it wouldn't move. Like I was, my brain was telling my legs to move and they couldn't. Um, and, and yeah, it just kind of, happened one morning you know and it it was terrifying because it 
it wasn't something that I was expecting. You know, I was expecting things to improve, especially, you know, not pushing myself. But looking back, I'm wondering, you know, was not pushing myself making things worse? But I can't really look at it like that. It's just what it was. And it got me to the doctors and blah, blah, blah. But at the time, it was nothing was more scary, you know, because that was an extremely life-changing moment of I'm an active person. I go out and hike. I go out and do things. I, I, I used to walk like miles, you know, I used to do all of these things and now everything's taken away. Everything's gone. Everything's changed. Um, I'm not going to be able to do any of that anymore. Oh my God, is the rest of my life going to be, I can't use my legs. You know, all of those terrifying things just running through my head in, in that moment. Um, you know, no, no rational thinking, no, oh my God, what do I do next? Just complete terror. So that sounds like something putting pressure on your spinal cord. Yeah. To me. Mm-hmm. Is, is is and so they they must have gone searching for the cause of that interruption between your brain and your legs, right? Yeah, and I I believe that's why my first rheumatologist originally looked down the road of um spondylarthritis um cuz that's like a, a fusion of the bottom of the spine if yeah. I remember correctly. Um, but when he didn't find evidence of that, he kind of moved away from my spine. Um, and <laughs> so that rheumatologist left that practice and I kind of fell through the cracks, which is why I moved to a different practice. And it was just something that never really got picked back up within the new practice um, because it wasn't my, what I was coming in for. Um, I was coming in for sarcoidosis treatment, you know? So the the spine pain kind of got pushed to the side. Hmm. Um, so it's not something that's really been looked at again since, and it's been four years. Have, uh, you, have you seen a neurologist? Uh-huh. Um, and that was more for, um, I don't have a feeling in my hands. And one of the symptoms when I first got um, sick were the the bottoms of my feet felt like they'd been filleted. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, so they looked into that and I had a skin biopsy done. And they said, I have uh, the neuropathy and kind of left it at that. And they've been treating the neuropathy. Um, But again, that hasn't really helped the spine thing. When you were taking prednisone, did you have the neuropathy in your hands? Um, yeah. You did. Mm -hmm. I have the same thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, My hands tingle all the time. I take gabapentin to... Mm -hmm. Kind of tone down the tingling in my hands, my legs, my feet. 
Um, and that's, that's permanent for me because of the damage on my spine, which is why I'm asking these questions like, wow, a lot of what you're going through, my case was not nearly as severe as yours, but, um, a lot of what you're describing sounds like what I have. And that's, it's on, I've got sarcoidosis on, on my spinal cord. So I'm just curious if anybody has looked for that. Have you, had they done MRIs of your spinal cord? Uh, not since the beginning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You might ask for that. <laughs> I might. Um, yeah. I, I still see doctors a few times a month. So. Right. Where do you go for your treatment? Uh, National Jewish. Well, they're good. Those folks they, they are good are. there. I've I've been really happy with my doctors since. Um, they're. I like that they they sit and they take the time and they explain things. You know, it's not just doctor jargon. You know, they they. Right. It, it's it's not black and white. It's here's normal people terms. <laughs> right. Good. Well, that helps. So you yeah. found you found FSR somewhere along the way. How did you stumble across FSR? Um, I think I think it was my uh, pulmonologist that uh, had said something to me about it. And um, so, because you and I were on a panel discussion uh, <laughs> not too long ago, uh, I was the moderator, and and people were listening to you tell your story and. There were other people on the panel, so we didn't get to do the deep dive like we're doing today in, into your life. And thank you for sharing, by the way. And and if you're listening, we're talking to uh, Rochelle De Maria, uh, who lives in Colorado Springs. So we were on the panel discussion. You found FSR. Um, how has FSR helped you? Um, it's made me feel a lot less alone. Um, and and just kind of having other people that I can relate to. Uh, because with with these symptoms and like it's really easy to feel isolated and alone you know especially in every day-to-day -day life where you know my my husband doesn't have to plan ahead he doesn't have to think okay well if I do this today then I'm not going to be able to move too well the next two days so do I really want to do this thing? And that's how I have to live my life. You know, so it's it's nice to have people that can relate to that way of thinking and planning their life. You know, people that understand those kind of limitations and not necessarily like walking on eggshells type of thing, but just the the cautious um the cautious attitude towards life now. Not that I want to not live my life but how carefully I have to and and just having the other people that understand that and because there's a lot of days where that's hard and it's it's not fair and you know you get really into your head and other people can help with the support and just kind of lift me back up out of that you know mm -hmm. and so how do, you, how do you con how do you contact those people? Is there a support group at National Jewish, or how how have you engaged with those people? Um, there is a support group, um, and and email back and forth. Um, you get a little closer with some of the people, and you can start texting. Um, but also, like in the support group, we um, hear from doctors too. Um, the doctors will pop in in the support group, and and um, 
give us more information about sarcoidosis itself, which is really helpful because it's, it's okay, I can learn about my sarcoidosis, but learning about sarcoidosis as a whole in general, which I mean, it's a snowflake disease. Everybody's is a little different, but learning about their research that they're doing um, and, and just kind of things like that and being able to ask questions too. Um, now they can't like, or they won't answer questions specific to your case because they can't, but, you know, questions you have about sarcoidosis and things like that, you know, we stick around for about an hour, sometimes an hour and 15 minutes and just talk about sarcoidosis and, and life with it and talk with the doctors. It's it's really neat. And And how does that help? Um, just the understanding, it's kind of like when you first get diagnosed and you have a name for something and you're like, oh my God, that's a relief. Like, I'm not crazy. Yeah, um, yeah. so learning more about it gives me something to, it, it's almost like something tangible, you know, um, it, it's just something easier to focus on easier to dive into because it's instead of focusing on the negative things maybe i can try to understand it a little bit more and for me that's really helpful uh, I, I can see where it was how and how is your mental health through all of this um in the beginning it was horrible um you know uh it was it was really dark in the beginning, um, especially like when I didn't know what I had, um, like that first year or so, you know, it put a, a strain on, on my entire life, you know, um, there were arguments with my fiance, like he he complained so much about having to help me that people asked him, why do you still want to marry her? Mm -hmm. um, and the arguments he'd get into or we'd get into with, with my mother-in-law and, and his sister just because we didn't have a name for what was wrong with me. And on the outside, it just looked like, I, I don't even know. But for me, knowing I physically can't do anything and all of these people are angry about it was, it just tore me down completely. And I mean, I'm, I'm normally a really confident, um, really confident person, uh, and at that point, it was it was one of my lowest I'd ever felt. And thankfully, today things are a lot better. Um, just just having the name sarcoidosis helped a lot. But then, you know, still moving forward with the, I'm never going to be the same person that I was. I'm never going to be able to work to the same extent that I used to. I used to work three jobs because I could. Um, and I'm a person that gets bored easily. And I'm never going to be able to do that again. Um, I used to cook extravagant meals and bake. 
and I can't, I don't have the stamina to do that anymore. Um, and it's just kind of the dealing with giving up all of those things that I love was something really hard to get through. But then other people in the support group and um, have, have told me, like, I don't need to completely give these things up. I just need to find my work around. You know, I can still bake and cook. I just need to find things that I can do more simply. Um, so something that won't take as long. So I'm not completely exhausting myself, you know, um, things like that. And that's really helped my mental health too. Um, I do see a therapist though, because uh, there's, there's definitely help. There's need for that for me. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it helps because it's, it's a huge change, you know, and I, I get, I get looks from people. Um, it might just be in my head, but I mean, being a young person and not being able to move as fast, like in the grocery store, even in the doctor's office, you know, I feel like people look at me a little weird. Um, it, it's, I, I don't feel like I, I am where I should be if I was a normal 28 year old. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I struggle with too, because it's, it's not, I'm never going to be. And um, it's, it's something I talk with a therapist a lot. I write about it a lot. Um, Journaling. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's, I can still live my life around limitations um and like find my own way and that's kind of the the way that I have to look at it you know um otherwise I'll just be like in a deep hole pit of depression and I don't want to live my life that way if I still want to live my life I can't live it that way yeah and that's those are tough tough things to think about and to overcome for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, you did get married though, right? Uh, we did. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah. And is, is your husband as the, is he, would you describe him as your caregiver? Uh, on and off. <laughs> um, he, he does his best. Yes. Um, thankfully I no longer need help to and from the bathroom or to shower or anything like that. Um, but he, he does his very best to show up. And, um, I got really lucky, um, just after my biopsy and diagnosis, my brother moved out to Colorado to help too. Um, so he drives me to doctor's appointments when my husband can't, and, uh, they both kind of show up for me as best they can. Yeah, that's great. Having that support system is is so important. And uh, and I, I I keyed in on one other thing that you said, which was you know here you were feeling bad, and people were mad at you. Mm -hmm. That's got to be so impossible. Yeah, it's because uh, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, and I can only. My words only go so far, 
you know, especially when I don't know how to explain these things that I'm going through. It's you only understand if you go through it yourself, you know, and that's where being able to talk to somebody else who has sarcoidosis, who gets it is so important because I could talk to I'm blue, blue in the face and they're still not going to get it. They're still not going to understand. Um, they can sympathize, they can empathize, but the true understanding is never going to be there. And it wasn't until like, I think two months ago that my mother-in-law really got the, I'm never going to get better. You know, I'm going to be on meds that'll help, but it's never going to go away. You know, she kept saying, you know, oh, they need to make you better. Oh, they need to make you better. That's never going to happen. Um, and, and it took until about two months ago for her to really understand that. Um, you know, because there's a lot of frustration with the, well, why can't I just go back to work part time? Why can't I just do that? Why can't I just do this? How come I have to leave family functions early? You know, all the things. Well, I have sarcoidosis. I get tired really fast. You know, doing things takes a lot out of me. I hurt all the time. And if if I'm not saying anything, I still hurt. If I say that I hurt, I really hurt, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's just, there is no way to fully deal with those people that were angry with me it was just hoping that here's here's the little bit of research that I have and then later on here's the name of what I have here's more research and just hoping that they can understand at their own pace at some point um was pretty much the only thing that I could do uh and then talking to a therapist and eventually other people, you know, and yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for, for working with FSR. And uh, I know that you get benefit from talking to the people in the support group, as you've just told us, but I'm sure they get benefit from you as well. And I mean, that's how it's supposed to work, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Okay. So, Rochelle, anything else that you, you want people to know or that you want to share? Um, not that I can think of. Just, I mean, it, it's a hard disease, you know. It's hard for people to understand. It's not something that's easy to go through. And... I really hope people don't have to go through it alone. And if, if you are, find somewhere, someone to reach out to. Great. Thank you for joining me. Yep. Thank you, John. I feel like a zombie Just feeding and stumbling Thank you to Rochelle for joining me here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. Um, my heart really goes out to her. 
she she really was a young person with a lot of energy, uh, a lot of focus on doing things outdoors, hiking, and that sort of thing. And and you know, sarcoidosis has really dealt her kind of a raw deal. And you know, we call it the snowflake disease because it affects everybody differently. And uh, so we've we've heard her story, and we know how it's affected her, and just none of it is good. None of it's good. And, you know, we hope that she can get back on her feet and, and appreciate the fact that, that she has reached out to FSR, found FSR, has been willing to share her story, uh, participated in a group uh, discussion at a recent FSR summit, and and we just really wish her all the best. And, and Rochelle, I thank you for sharing your story here today. The official Sark Fighter song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer, who plays in a band called the White Hot Lizards in Alberta, Canada. He's a fellow Sark Fighter, and the story behind the lyrics is all the way back in episode 12. I release the Sark Fighter podcast every other Monday. As I'm speaking today, my trusty dog Dougal is not curled up on the chair in my office. Neither is my new puppy Shandy because... They are both hanging out with my wife downstairs in her office, but I can tell you that Shandy was up here until just a few minutes ago. <laughs> All right. The backstory to the founding of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. Please follow the Sark Fighter on social media. Just Google Sark Fighter, all one word. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm on Peloton if you have a Peloton fitness device as Sark Fighter. And my cycling blog, Carl and the Cyclist, does have a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. If you're new here and you're just trying to figure out what Sark is, go back and listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart. My story is episode one, and you can go back and listen to those. And please send me an email. It's in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what you think of the show. Tell me about your situation. And let me know if you'd like to appear on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel your pain someday. Learn endurance, your strength will fade away. Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pace. Dead man walking.